Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 167 for the first half of November 2017. The misconceptions and mistakes that I'm going to talk about today fall into the category of Modern Eclipse Lunacy, Part 2. In this second part to the Modern Eclipse Lunacy series, which should total three regular episodes, I'm going to focus on the claims of those who think Earth is flat, and what they had to say about the total solar eclipse that we had back in August of 2017. First, before I get to that, I'm going to go to the old-school podcast method and get into the background information first, because it's due to the mainstream model of how solar eclipses and lunar eclipses for that matter, work, that flat Earth proponents, or flat Earthers for short, have an issue. The study of the Earth's shape goes at least as far back as the ancient Greeks, who were able to calculate its circumference to an accuracy of about 2% of the modern value. It certainly goes back further in time because of efforts to navigate via waterways. You kind of have to have a concept of a spherical planet in order to get latitude correct when you're out at sea and using the stars. But at the very least, this shows that at least 2,200 years ago, at least one group of people on the planet knew that Earth was round and not flat. Tuck that aside for a few minutes, and we can discuss why eclipses occur, assuming spherical planets and moons. An eclipse, to boil it down to the original meaning, is derived from Latin, and I apologize for Latin scholars, uh, the word is roughly eclepian, which means to fail to appear. The modern meaning in astronomy is when one body in the sky, from our vantage point, covers another body in the sky. We tend to put an adjective in front for the body that is being covered, such that a lunar eclipse is when the moon is covered, and a solar eclipse is when the sun is covered. A lunar eclipse happens when Earth passes directly enough between the moon and the sun, such that Earth's shadow, when cast by the sun, falls on the moon. A solar eclipse happens when the moon passes directly enough between Earth and the sun, such that the moon's shadow, when cast by the sun, falls on Earth. Since Earth is much bigger than the moon, uh, roughly about a factor of four in diameter, Earth's shadow in space is bigger, and the moon also has less surface area to be covered. That's why lunar eclipses are a bit more common than solar, and why they last much longer. With those basics in place, there's also the factoid about orbital path that has to be kept in mind. The moon's path around Earth is tilted by about 5 degrees relative to Earth's path around the sun. That means that it spends the vast majority of its time either above or below the sun as seen in our sky. Just as if you were to put, uh, say, two rings together, or two hula hoops for those children of the 50s or 60s or maybe even 70s, um, you have one ring or one hula hoop that's slightly smaller and it fits inside of the other, and then you tilt them. You get two points where the rings or the hula hoops touch. And the same is true for the moon's orbit around the Earth. You get two points in the orbit where it crosses the path of Earth around the Sun, and it's only at or very, very close to those points that you can get an eclipse. And while there's a little bit of wobble in how those points line up, they're called nodes, they tend to line up as you might expect. 
Two points in the moon's orbit required to line up with two points, or actually really any point, in the Earth's orbit around the sun. But because of those two points, and we go around the sun once a year, we get eclipses roughly every six months, or one year divided by two. Since I've talked a lot about that background information before, that's all I'm going to really discuss in this episode, maybe three minutes worth. Returning to the shape of the planet, it's said that Galileo was one of the first to use eclipses to demonstrate that Earth is spherical. The shadow cast by Earth on the moon during a lunar eclipse, regardless of which part of the world is seeing the lunar eclipse, is always a circle. If Earth were flat, or a short squat cylinder as I talked about in episode 33, that shadow might be a circle at one point, but at another part, if another part of Earth is facing the moon, when you get the lunar eclipse, then it should be a compressed circle, and eventually you would see just a lunar eclipse where there's a line of the flat Earth being cast on the moon. Because you don't, that shows Earth is not flat. Assuming, of course, the standard model for why we get an eclipse. With that in mind, let's look at what some of the Flat Earthers were saying in August. I'm going to go from the crazy end to the slightly saner end in this episode. I already had a headache when starting to research it, and that's why this episode is quite late, uh, because I hadn't really been drinking enough water, but in reading the rantings of a rapper named B.O.B., I'm just going to call him Bob because B.O.B. is stupid, um, it did not help the headache. As a sentence of background, Bob is a rapper who, in 2016, announced to his 2.3 million Twitter followers that Earth is flat, which prompted a response from even Neil deGrasse Tyson, for whatever that's worth. I'm going to go through a few of those tweets and some of the responses by his followers, and discuss some of the more salient, uh, perhaps interesting bits of science that we can get from the tweets, or at least from a discussion of why the tweets are wrong. He started out by tweeting, It's so amazingly beautiful how the moon can pass in front of the sun multiple times in one day. Yeah, that's how he started. I looked through the thread of replies to try to understand what makes him think that that's a fact. I I was completely unsuccessful in doing this. Perhaps the best responses, in my opinion, were the ones telling him to read a book, and that he shouldn't think that second-grade questions are the epitome of intellectual probing and discourse. But just in case you're wondering, no, the moon does not pass in front of the sun multiple times in one day. It takes one lunar month, which is just shy of a calendar month, except in non-leap year Februarys, to go through our sky once. And it's only about every six months that it actually does pass in front of the sun, as seen from our planet, somewhere on our planet. The next tweet was, It's so amazingly beautiful how the moon isn't visible before and after a total solar eclipse. Unfortunately, this is something that I've heard from more than just flat earthers, so I want to explain it from here. The moon, by itself, doesn't emit any light, although I'll get into that later because Bob weighs in on that little issue as well. It reflects light. We see the moon lit by the sun, but we can also see the moon lit by Earth. In the first situation, sunlight bounces off the moon and some of it comes to Earth and we see that illuminated portion. In the latter situation, sunlight bounces off of Earth, which is larger than the moon and over four times more reflective, so it bounces off of Earth, onto the moon, and then back to Earth. If you have a thin crescent moon in the twilight sky, you can often, even with your unaided eye, see the sunlit portion 
and the earthlit portion as well. This is called Earthshine, and I've actually done several photos of it for, you know, for fun. But during the day, the earthlit portion is too dim relative to the brightness of the sky, and you can't see it unless you do some very careful photography and computer processing of those images. Under the standard model, the moon is very close to the sun just before and just after a solar eclipse, so that earthlit portion is not going to be visible relative to not only the brightness of the sky, but also the glare of the sun. And when I say that the moon is very close, I mean very close appearing in our sky. One of my favorite responses to Bob's tweet was, statements like this are why we should never cut funding to education. The next tweet gets to what the Flat Earthers, or at least some Flat Earthers, think actually causes the eclipse, and that's one word, Rahu. Rahu is the severed head of, effectively, a Hindu demigod that swallows the sun and causes eclipses in that mythology. In Vedic astrology, it's one of the nine planets. So, Flat Earthers, or again, at least some Flat Earthers, and apparently Bob, have adopted the idea that Rahu actually exists and it is what causes solar eclipses. As a demigod, I guess it doesn't really have to follow any normal laws of physics. I also suppose that if you like your universe to try to be consistent, like you know, most of us, uh, you should probably reference really, well, any of my dozens of episodes on Planet X, perhaps the most relevant being episode 109 on Marshall Masters' ideas, because he is a proponent of the idea that the uh, Planet X is just always sort of hovering near the sun, never really is visible except as lens flares or various other known image anomalies, but again, that's more on episode 109. Moving on. My favorite response to Bob's tweet about Rahu was an image of a jar of ragu pasta sauce. An hour or so later, after that last tweet on Rahu, Bob started to respond to some of his critics. One of them wrote, You realize the only reason you see the moon in the first place is because the sun casts light on it, right? All light is behind it now. Bob's response was, According to a textbook, yes, but the moon actually generates its own light. Alright, well, taking the uh, argument against authority and putting it aside, I told you before that he has his own ideas on moonlight, and this idea is surprisingly and unfortunately common among flat earthers, saying that the moon emits its own light and doesn't get any from the sun, and I think that they have to say that at least under some flat earth models, because in those models, the sun and the moon are basically flashlights aimed down at the planet, and that's why only some parts are in daylight or moonlight at any given time. Flat earthers will also very, very oddly claim that the moonlight is colder than ambient light, such that if you take a thermometer and you measure something in moon shadow, it will register a warmer temperature than the object in moonlight. To say this is, well, wrong, is an understatement, but I can think of one legitimate potential scenario where that measurement could have been made and led to this erroneous conclusion, and in talking about it, I get to talk about one of my uh, former grad student friends, so let's go into this digression a little bit. Basically, different stuff cools at different rates. As a very simple example, if you've ever been on a beach at sunset or sunrise, you should have noticed that sand very rapidly changes temperature in response to the presence or absence of sunlight. I guess this would also work in a sandy desert. In contrast, a large rock will retain its heat 
or lack thereof, much longer than the loose sand. So if you ever are on a beach and there happens to be, say, a retaining wall between the edge of the beach and the road or sidewalk or something beyond it, near sunset or sunrise, you can see and feel that the sand will rapidly cool or heat up in response to the sunlight or absence of it, while the retaining wall is going to maintain its temperature a lot longer. As another example, water is able to retain its heat a very long time, which is why it takes so long for it to heat up as opposed to something else. This is also why it's a good, if very heavy, insulator. I actually had an office mate in graduate school who was modeling this for rocks embedded in the surface of Mars to try to predict if the Mars Phoenix lander would find ice near the surface. We all joked that she needed to defend her thesis before the lander actually landed on Mars and proved everything wrong. That aside, all that her code did was to model the exchange of heat and track temperature given different parameters for how well different material retains heat. She also did laboratory work in order to make some of those measurements of heat retention herself. She actually was able to cool the lab, or at least the experimental apparatus, down to Martian temperatures, run it inside of a vacuum so that it was like Martian surface pressure, and she was able to get Martian soil simulants from NASA in order to better simulate this kind of stuff. So with that said, I can imagine a situation where someone measured the temperature of one material that was in the shade of something from the moon and got one temperature, and then went out of that shadow and measured the temperature of a different material and got a different reading. Or perhaps that first material was really next to a big, big rock or a retaining wall that had retained some heat, and so they got some thermal interaction from that wall, some radiation that heated the material that they were directly measuring that was in the shadow of the moonlight. I don't know if that's how this false idea came about, but it's one of the most plausible scenarios that I could come up with, giving them the benefit of the doubt that they didn't just make it up. Getting back to the tweet, my favorite response is again, this guy right here, this is why we need more emphasis on effective investment in our education system. Then they made a political statement about the current Secretary of Education in the United States, but this isn't that kind of show, so I will refrain from repeating it. My favorite snarky response tweet was, How can it be made of cheese and still generate light? Please explain. In response later to a tweeter who wrote, So, you're telling me that there are light bulbs in the moon? How the hell does it generate light? It's a rock. Is it flat to you too? Bob wrote, A spherical object doesn't reflect refract light evenly across its surface. I wasn't able to decipher what he meant by that until someone posted a picture showing, effectively, a disco ball. The disco ball, when illuminated by one light, shows a bright reflection along a direct line of sight to that light source, and varying illumination that fades away as you go more indirect from that light source on the body. Apparently, what Bob was trying to say is that the full moon should show that kind of illumination pattern, with what we call a bright specular reflection, rather than what appears to be an evenly illuminated disk. I guess that was supposed to answer the question asked by making the point that if the moon is a sphere illuminated by the sun, we should see that kind of light pattern rather than what appears to be an evenly illuminated disk, therefore it must generate its own light. 
What this ignores is many, many things, such as, uh, say, different materials reflect light differently. Just look at the dish rag versus a spoon. But instead of talking about those, I'm going to talk about the inconsistency. What Bob is effectively saying is that the moon must have its own light source, because if it didn't, and it's a sphere, then it must look different from how it actually does. Right there, embedded inside of that argument, he's giving away that the moon is a sphere. Because if the moon were flat and illuminated by the sun, then it should have the even illumination that we see during a full moon. By saying that it must emit its own light in order to solve this problem, he's giving away that the moon is a sphere. Moving on, in two tweets a mere two minutes apart, he wrote, That same blue dot appeared in everyone's pics, and it's not the moon. Then he tweeted a picture showing that dot and wrote, This was taken by me during the eclipse. How is the moon blocking the sun if it's way down there, pointing at the blue dot? So again, he's being insanely inconsistent. Either that blue dot is not the moon, or it is. If it isn't, then you can't use that as an argument against the standard model. What it actually is should be obvious to most skeptics who've dealt with various paranormal claims that use photographs as evidence. It's a simple lens flare. Someone stated several hours later, I like Bob's thought processes and his car talk. I believe he knows more than I do, but if the Earth wasn't round, then explain gravity. Bob responded with one word, density. This set off a long tweet thread, but I liked the response of, explain density without gravity. Someone else tried to say, density equals gravity, gravity equals density. A table is more dense than the air, so the air can't support it, thus it falls. Helium gas is less dense, done. As pointed out by the original questioner, you can't explain density without gravity. If density is your explanation for gravity, you can't use gravity to define density. In response to that, the tweeter wrote, I made you confused because you said the same thing twice. Okay, uh, ignoring the childlike behavior of tweeters, this actually was an interesting question that I had to think about for a few moments. Can the idea of objects separating by density be used to explain gravity without invoking gravity? And I don't think it can. For example, let's simply take a ton of lead and a ton of helium. Assuming you've heard that joke and know that one ton of something weighs the same as one ton of another thing, as in uh, the joke, which weighs more, a ton of bricks or a ton of lead, then we can ask why the ton of lead will fall to the floor while a ton of helium gas will rise to the ceiling. The only reason this happens is because of gravity. The less dense material rises because the denser material, in this case the air relative to helium, is pulled more towards the center of the planet because of the greater mass which translates to more gravity. If there were no gravity, or not more gravity, but more gravitational force. So if there were no gravity, this would not happen. Astronauts have shown this on the International Space Station many times, such as by releasing a small ball of water in midair. It just stays there or floats about. It doesn't go immediately rushing down relative to the camera. It just stays there because there's a microgravity environment on the International Space Shuttle. Uh, See the last episode for more on microgravity. So even though I think that we could all agree that water is still denser than air, regardless of whether you're in space or not, that kind of experiment shows that objects of different density 
only fall into a column arranged by density when acted on by the force of gravity. In fact, we can also go to the basic laws of physics for this discussion, too. Newton's first law of motion can be colloquially summarized as objects in motion, or at rest, stay in motion, or at rest, unless acted on by an external force. Density is not a force, it's a property of matter. In order for a ton of lead to fall to the ground if I release it, that lead must be acted on by a force, in this case, gravity. Moving on from Bob, another set of flat Earth proponents said that the shadow of the moon on Earth proves the standard model is wrong. It doesn't prove Earth is necessarily flat, nor does it prove that Earth isn't round, but they think that it does. In that sense, it falls very much under the classic young Earth creationist argument that if you think you've disproven a standard model, then your model is the only one that can possibly be correct. In other words, a false dichotomy. The idea of the shadows goes like this. If the moon is 25% the size of Earth, then the path of totality should be 25% the size of Earth as well. It shouldn't be a narrow band because shadows don't form points. The rays should all be parallel. This might seem to make sense at first, but the mainstream answer lies in approximations not being 100% reality. I know, imagine that. An approximation is not 100% accurate. Okay, starkiness aside, in our normal everyday life, all light from the sun that hits our planet is coming at us straight and parallel, along a line directly connecting the midpoint of the sun with the midpoint of the planet. But that's not exactly true. Light streams out in all directions from each point on the surface of the sun. That means that you could be getting a light ray at this very moment from the left side or the right side of the sun, the top side or the bottom side of the sun, or somewhere in between. The sun is a disk, it has a finite size in our sky, and we get light rays from all parts of it. And actually, I guess since this is a bit of a flat Earth episode, I need to clarify and say the sun appears to be a disk as seen from Earth. It is, in fact, a sphere. All right, moving on. If we did not see light rays from all parts of the sun, again, as seen from Earth, then we wouldn't see the sun as appearing to be a disk. We would just see the shape as from where we get the light. That was a bit convoluted, so let me use one of my infamous analogies. Uh, Let's say you're looking at a television. The television set, the screen, is a rectangle, as opposed to the sun, which appears to be a disc. So it appears to be a rectangle because you are getting light, uh, assuming you're watching a show and it's, say, you're in a darkened room, you're getting light from that rectangular area. Now, put your hand out in front of yourself and block part of the television set. You are no longer getting light from that part of the television set, and therefore the television set no longer looks like a rectangle. It looks like a rectangle with a hand taken out of it. The same thing goes for the sun. If we were not getting light from all parts of the sun, then it would not look like a disc. It would look just like whatever shape is, well, emitting that light. That tortured explanation aside, let's move on. When the moon passes in front of the sun as seen from a location on Earth, one must ask, what part of the sun is it passing in front of? Because both are spheres, or disks, or whatever. It doesn't actually matter in this case to explain the basic concepts. Regardless of the shape, what's important is that the sun is still large, the moon is small, and the sun is far away. 
you can do the experiment yourself and trace out light rays from a large sun with a small moon between it and Earth. If your model is roughly at all to scale, which would require a very big sheet of paper, what you'll find is that a lot of Earth's day side will still be able to see all parts of the sun's disk. A small part of Earth will see light blocked by the moon from some parts of the sun, but it will still be able to see light from some other parts of the sun that is not blocked or are not blocked by the moon. But there will be a small part of Earth that will not have any pathway to see the sun because the moon blocks all light from all angles of the sun's disk. Incidentally, if the moon were farther away, as it sometimes is in its orbit, no spot on Earth will be fully within the moon's shadow. There will be always some straight path around the moon to get to the sun from any location on the day's side of the planet. In that case, we have an annular eclipse. Or, if the moon is off to one side, a partial solar eclipse. That's why the size of the path of totality of a solar eclipse does not prove a flat Earth. Finally, I shouldn't leave this topic without again giving credit where credit is due to the Creation Ministries International, which also put up a post explaining how eclipses don't prove that Earth is flat. And again, they got flack from their readers. They pointed out two things in their article that I think are actually worth mentioning. One because I somehow missed the obvious implication, and the other because they actually did a little bit of math that I didn't do. First up is going back to Bob's first and second tweets, where the clear implication is that we don't see the moon leading up to an eclipse, and so how do we know that that's what's causing the eclipse? The answer should be obvious. We can see the moon a day before, and we can see the moon a day after. We can connect dots. I don't know about you, but I was playing connect the dots at least as young as maybe three or four years old. The connection goes through the sun. Imagine that. This works all other nights. Why should we assume that the moon makes a hop, skip, and a jump over the sun in this particular instance? The answer is that we shouldn't. That's how we know that the moon, or at least one of the lines of evidence of the moon being the cause of a solar eclipse. I'll get in a later episode to evidence as to how we know, how we really, really know that it's the moon that's causing the solar eclipse. Uh, in other words, photographic evidence. With that said, the second bit of the Creation Ministries International post that I wanted to talk about is the math. They showed that based on the observable fact of how large the path of totality is, if you use the number that many flat earthers today use, that the sun is only 5,000 kilometers away or 3,000 miles, then the moon can only be 0.13 kilometers across and 12.5 kilometers away, as in 427 feet across and 7.5 miles away. That would mean that we can easily fly above the moon in airplanes, because it's only 39,600 feet up. So, when you hit that cruising altitude of 40,000 feet, you're above the moon. And yet, at least from my own perspective, from my own anecdotes, I have seen the moon above me, not below me, while flying at such a cruising altitude. So this part two is a little bit shorter than part one, but somehow it looks like it's going to top off at about a half hour episode, uh, and I don't really think it needs to be longer. And I don't know about you, but I can only take so much flat earth stuff in one sitting. To borrow again from the Creation Ministries International Post, I think this is something that you should remember, and it's a good way to wrap up this main segment. Friends, this is not true. 
don't get sucked into the flat earth nonsense. There's one additional segment for this episode, a correction. Haven't had one of those in a while. Um, not saying that I'm perfect, Popity's nerfect, but this was sent in by a listener on Facebook. And uh, this is a correction to the last episode where apparently early on in the episode, I gave the error bar on the age of the star as 0.08 billion years. Not 0.8 billion years, but 0.08 billion years. So, under what I said, the error bars don't overlap and things make no sense until about 15 minutes later in the episode. This slipped through despite listening two full times to the episode and editing, so I apologize for any confusion. With that said, I have about 30 emails of feedback in my inbox. Uh, I have a long plane flight coming up, so I do hope to knock out a few responses during that. So, stay tuned if you've messaged me recently, and hopefully you'll get a response. And with that said, stay tuned, and I hope you listen next time. That wraps up this topic for the 167th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. And if you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the podcast or on the website, and you can leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, or you can leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message, appreciate the feedback, hopefully we'll get a little bit caught up in the near future, and uh, if you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you might never meet in real life. In other words, the internet. It's okay, kids. Stranger Danger was for the 70s.